Good morning, church. I want to welcome those of you that are worshiping with us online as well. And didn't we have some church up in here just a few minutes ago? We did. It was so good. Let's give our worship team a hand just for leading us, <clears throat> opening our hearts, softening our hearts to, to God's word. Hey, we're starting a new series today called Reasons for the Season. And, uh, and Christmas, I was thinking about Christmas. Christmas is one of those times uh, of the year where everyone is looking for a reason to celebrate, right? Like even us, we're looking for a reason. We're going to celebrate tonight with a warehouse family Christmas uh, tonight at 6 o'clock. We're looking forward to that. But we're all looking for a reason to celebrate Christmas. I mean, we play Christmas music. We decorate our homes. Uh, some of us go all Clark Griswold on the outside of our homes. I know I do. And, uh, and companies go all out with their Christmas advertising. Our kids, they even come home singing Christmas songs, and, and we bake cookies, and we watch our favorite Christmas movies. I've already watched Christmas Vacation, Christmas Story, and Elf already, and so we watch those favorite movies, and of course, we prepare to give each other presents, right? Like we exchange gifts, and, and it's just a, an amazing time of the year. It's a wonderful time of the year. Like someone should write a song about, oh, maybe they already have. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? And that's what it should be. When we think about Christmas, that's what it should be uh, for everyone who understands who Jesus is and how he makes peace and hope and love and joy, not just possible, but tangible, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. That no matter where we are in life, no matter what we're facing, what we're dealing with, that Jesus makes hope and love and joy and peace very tangible. And that's why some people will call us to remember during this holiday season. They'll say, they'll say that thing. They'll say, now remember, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Like, like, like I know that, that, that that's super cliche, but it's so true, right? Like it's so true. Jesus is the reason for the season. And if I'm being though honest with you, I feel like it's kind of weird or kind of awkward that we even have to like say that to one another. Now remember... Jesus is the reason for the season, and, and that we have to be told why we do this thing called Christmas. We have to be told to remember the reason that we gather together, because it's almost like we're spending our time chasing after the shadow and not the substance or the true meaning of Christmas. And so here's what we say. We say, Jesus, remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. This is also a time and a season where we hear words like hope and love and peace and generosity and joy more than any other time of the year. You'll hear it, you'll see it everywhere, and, and we desperately want these things. I believe we want those things in our lives. We want to experience hope. We want to experience joy. We want to experience peace. We want to experience generosity, and we're hoping and we're praying that, that Christmas can bring us, that this Christmas can bring us a little bit of that. And, and it kind of does. It kind of does for a little while, but not as long as we would like. And, and maybe this is you, maybe before Christmas, like you're struggling. Like you're struggling a month before December. You're, you're struggling and you're, and you're with your circumstances and you're struggling with life. And, and, and then you're just, you're just like, just Christmas is just around the corner. Like, because you want that boost that comes with Christmas. And, and we need that. We need that boost. But then by the middle of January, we find ourselves struggling once again. 
And then we find ourselves looking forward to the next Christmas. And we start posting countdowns like 350 more days till Christmas, 340 more days till Christmas. And then we put the elf guy on there and we're like, 300 more days till Christmas, you know, and, and, and we start the countdown all over again. And, and let me just share with you that, that, that if you really want, if you really want all the good things that Christmas, that the Christmas songs are talking about, then you've got to grasp the actual substance of the holiday. You've got to actually grasp the meaning or the reason for the season and not just the shadows. You've got to discover the real meaning, the real meaning that gives power to obtain lasting joy and peace and hope and love right where it's always been and actually is found. And if you want to do that, if that's you this year, if you really want to grab hold of what it means to experience true hope and love and peace and joy, then let me encourage you that there's no better place to go than the lips of Jesus himself, which is exactly what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks. We are going to be looking at several of the reasons that Jesus himself gave for coming on Christmas and why his coming on Christmas, on that first Christmas in a manger, why that is necessary for you and for me. And so to get us started this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's one of the Gospels that tells the account or the story of Jesus. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 this morning. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to open them up or your YouVersion Bible app, and, and that's where we're going to be hanging out. And let me just give you some context around this passage because I think it's important that we understand what's being said, but also where it's being said. And, and so our passage is found in the section that Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like if you look in the Bible, if you look at the, just before in Matthew chapter five, it'll probably say Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is teaching uh, people, he's preaching to people on the side of a mountain. That's why it's called Sermon on the Mount. He's on the side of a mountain and he's preaching uh, to, to a ton of people. And he's telling them what the life in the kingdom of God, what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And so I want us to read it together, understanding that's the context, that Jesus is sharing this as he's telling them, listen, I want you to know what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And here's what he says, starting in verse 17. Just read along with me. It'll be on the screens too. It says, do not think, Jesus is speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, in this passage, which, by the way, is one of the, past, one of the scriptures in the Bible that theologians wrestle with, it's one of those difficult, challenging uh, passages in the Bible. And, and Jesus tells us, though, he says, listen, uh, one of the central reasons that I came, one of the central reasons that Christmas had to happen was so that I might fulfill the law of God. Now, I know, I know you well enough to know that when you wake up on Christmas morning, that is exactly the first thing that you think about, right? Like, that's exactly what you think about. You wake up, and you put on your slippers, and maybe you grab a cup of coffee. Maybe you do a few stretches on Christmas morning. You greet your spouse saying something like, Merry Christmas, darling. Praise God that Jesus came to fulfill the law of God. It's going to be a great day. That's what you do, right? Of course you don't. That's not what you do, but that's what Jesus did. And so if you really want to know what Christmas is all about, you need to know what it means that Jesus came to fulfill the law and why that's such good news for you and for me. And to do that, we have to ask ourselves three questions. We have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus not do? What did Jesus do? And what does it mean for us? And so this morning, I want to spend our time together answering those three questions based on this scripture. What did Jesus not do? What did he do? And what does that mean for us? And the first question is pretty easy to answer. The first question is, what did Jesus not do? And Jesus did not come to abolish the law. That's what he said. Look at verse 17. He said, do not think. He's talking to the crowd. He's talking to the multitude on the side of the mountain. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if Jesus, think about this, if Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, what do you think the people were thinking? They were thinking that he did come to abolish the law and the prophets. And that's why he's a step ahead of them. He anticipates their questions and he just goes ahead and tells them, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now you got to understand right before that, right before this passage, he just preached the Beatitudes. He just said that, that, um, that blessed are those who are broken. He just said that those that are mourning will be comforted. He said that those that are persecuted, those are the ones who will open, are open to the kingdom of God. And, and the people on the side of the mountain, they're like, well, Jesus, that doesn't sound much like the rest of the Bible. So did you come to abolish it? And Jesus, again, he anticipates what they're asking, and he goes, no, I did not come to abolish the law. Now, you have to understand something, and this is where it gets challenging, is that you have to understand what the law and the prophets meant for, G for, Jesus, uh, meant for Jesus in that time. Like, what did the people that were hearing him say that understand it to mean when Jesus said the law and the prophets? You see, the law simply meant the Torah, it simply meant the first five books of the Old Testament, that when Jesus said the law, they knew that he was talking about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They knew that. And yet when we hear the word, when you and I in 2023 hear the word law, here's what we think of. We think of a list of rules and commands that we've got to follow or check off. We think of the Ten Commandments. We think of thou shalt and thou shalt not. But for Hebrews... 
in Jesus' day, the law was not just a bunch of rules. It was not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It was a covenant. It was an agreement. It was a pact between them and God. It was all about love. It was all about God showering his love on them. So when they heard the word law, they didn't think of a bunch of rules and regulations. What they thought of was the covenant that they have between them and God. And then when Jesus said the word prophets, because he said the law and the prophets, he was speaking about the historical books in the Old Testament. The books like Daniel that we've uh, talked about in here a few months ago, it was, it was the Old Testament prophetic writings. And, and then there was also another section that Jesus doesn't include here, uh, but it's called, they're called the writings in the Old Testament, and, and they're the, the books of poetry. They're sort of like the junk drawer of the Bible where everything else kind of falls into. And so here's what I want you to know this morning, that when Jesus says law and the prophets, he's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. He's not just focused on the Ten Commandments. He's not just focused on all those rules and regulations. He's focused on the entirety of the New Testament. And Jesus says, he says, listen, based on my teaching, I know what you just heard. You just heard me talk about these things called the Beatitudes. Uh, and you think that I'm disconnecting you from everything that was included from Genesis all the way through Malachi. But he's like, but no. I'm not abolishing it. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm not excluding it. Actually, he says, I came to fulfill it. And so that leads us to our second question. Jesus didn't come to abolish it. So what did he come to do? He came to fulfill the law. Now, the Greek word for fulfill is a word called plero, and it means to fill to absolute capacity. And, and I love it. It's this image of filling a pitcher of water to uh, the point of overflowing. Like not just to the top, but to the point where water is gushing over the rims or the sides of the pitcher. You see, this word fulfill, it means to, to, um, to take to an appointed destination, to arrive at that final destination. It's as if the Old Testament, uh, to say the Old Testament only got us so far, right? But Jesus says, I'm taking us to the point that the Old Testament was always pointing to and was always talking about. I'm, I'm taking you to the destination. You see, Jesus saying, I'm not abolishing it. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not excluding it. He's like, I'm painting in color for you what the Old Testament was talking about from the very beginning. Jesus is like, listen, he's like, you've got to understand that I have come to fill it up. I have come to take us to our final destination. Theologian N.T. Wright, he puts it this way. He says, uh, when he spoke of the scripture needing to be fulfilled, when Jesus spoke of the scripture needing to be fulfilled, he was thinking of the entire storyline at last coming to fruition. He's bringing everything together and of an entire world of hints and shadows now coming to plain statement in full light. Jesus is like, listen, I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to bring it into living color. You see, this is something that's important for us to understand, that Jesus didn't come to discard the Jewish scriptures. He came to put their intent on display. He came to reveal to us what the Old Testament had always been trying to point us to. Think of it this way. The Old Testament was the gospel in bud, but the New Testament 
is the gospel in full bloom. Jesus is the law with skin on. Jesus says, listen, I had to come on Christmas. I had, to, I had to make that deal. I had to go from up there to down here and come and live in living color for the world to see what I had always been pointing to in the Old Testament. And if, and hear me, if the nation of Israel could have lived out the scriptures perfectly, it would have looked like Jesus. If they could have lived it out perfectly in the way that God created it to be, it would have looked like Jesus. And you're like, well, what does Jesus look like? Go home, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and get the picture of Jesus. He reveals it to us. He doesn't get rid of it. Now, you might be wondering, well, Pastor Rick, how does he do that? Like, how does Jesus, how does he paint this picture? How does he paint in color what was only in black and white in the Old Testament? What does he do that the Jewish people couldn't do? And let me just share with you two things. The first thing he does is he lives in shalom. He lives a life of shalom. And and when humanity fell back in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way and ignore God's way, when they decided to live and step out on their own, uh, a fracture took place. This fourfold fracture happened in the world. Sin entered into the world and our relationship with God was immediately fractured. And our relationship with others was fractured. And our relationship with ourselves was fractured. And our relationship with creation was fractured. And the Old Testament and the law and the prophets and all of the writings were all meant to bring the nation of Israel back into what it looks like to live as a people of shalom. Now that word shalom, it's a word that we know and we say, oh, that means peace. But that's just a part of what shalom means. Yes, shalom means peace, but if a Jewish person were to walk up to you and greet you and say shalom, they want more than just peace for you. They want wholeness. They want you to experience completeness in your life. They want you to experience the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus came and lives this life of shalom, this whole life. And, and, and the Old Testament was there, and, and it's a story of how God was trying to bring the people back to a life of shalom. You see, God's intention were that the people of Israel were going to guide everyone else into that life of wholeness and shalom. And because they didn't do it, Jesus comes and he brings that into full color and full picture for us. Jesus is like, you want to know what shalom is? Just look at me. Watch what I do. That's shalom. But that wasn't all that Jesus puts on display. The second thing that Jesus does is he establishes the law of love. He establishes the law of love. If you read on in Matthew chapter 22, if you fast forward uh, in the gospel to chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus is asked a question. He said, someone comes up to him and says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And it's like, if we were only going to keep one command, Jesus, which one would we keep? Which one would it be? Which one is the greatest? And Jesus replies, and he, he doesn't think about it. He doesn't ponder on it. He doesn't say, let me get back to you. He doesn't say, oh, let me go consult my favorite theologian. He immediately responds. He says, here, says, this is easy. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. He says, this is the greatest, the first and greatest commandment. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
God says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is, it's to love God and to love people. But then he makes this audacious statement, and we miss this statement all the time because we get focused on loving God and loving people. But here's what he says right after. He says this, he says, and all the law and the prophets, we've heard that before, right? All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. And what does it all mean? What does all mean? Let me just give you a theological term for what all means. It means all. It means everything. It means nothing excluded. And Jesus says all of the law and prophets hang on these two commands, to love God and to love people. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be can all be summed up by this one command, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we keep this law, we keep the rest of them. That's what Jesus is saying, saying, listen, if you can keep the love God and love people, you can keep all the rest of them. And Paul puts it this way, even in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, he says these words. He says, for the entire law, the entire law, in other words, all is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So I just want you to picture with me Picture the Old Testament as somebody who's learning a new instrument. Maybe you decided to pick up the fiddle and learn how to play it, or maybe you decided to pick up the piano or maybe the guitar. And I can tell you, uh, you know, anytime you learn a new instrument, it's one of the first things you do is you learn the notes, right? Or you learn the chords. Like when I taught myself to play the guitar, uh, I learned the first three chords that every person learning the guitar learns how to play, G, C, and D. Like, that's the three. If you know G, C, and D and the 80s, you could play almost any song in the world because that's all they were is G, C, and D. It's changed now. But that's what you learned. You learned, first thing you learned is your notes. And then once you learned the notes, you went on and you learned the scales, right? And I took guitar lessons after I taught myself the basics. I'm like, maybe I need to learn some things. And so I, I, I paid for guitar lessons and, and I wanted to play the electric guitar like Jimi Hendrix. And my, my guitar teacher looked like Jimi Hendrix, so I thought I was in good hands. But you know, all we did week in and week out is learn scales. And I was like, this is boring. Like, I don't want to do it. He's like, well, if you want to learn how to play guitar, you got to learn the scales. So you learn the notes and you learn the scales. And the Old Testament is kind of like learning a new instrument. And if you're a musician, you know this. You know that you have to learn the notes and the scales. You've got to know them inside and out. And why? And so if you're learning this new instrument, the goal, the goal of learning an instrument is not to play notes and not to play scales. Like you would be bored if I sat here and just did scales all day. If James played on piano and just did scales, you'd be like, okay, like can we do something else? And, and, and that's not the goal. The goal of learning the scales and the notes is so that you can eventually grab a guitar, grab a fiddle, grab a piano. I said fiddle, by the way, and nobody goes, yeah, he didn't call it a violin. I didn't. I called it a fiddle. Like, I feel like I'm in the bluegrass now, like I'm a part of the club. I don't know. Maybe not. So eventually, uh, you can grab a guitar or a piano, and you can sit down and play music, right? And you can play beautiful music, music that draws people in, and that's the goal. But to get to the goal, you got to know the notes, and you got to know the scales. And in the same way, I think Jesus is saying that the goal of the Old Testament wasn't just to follow a bunch of commands and to get them down. It wasn't just to check off a bunch of boxes. The goal of the, of the Old Testament, of the law, and of the commands, and the prophets, and the writings was to teach you and me how to live. And he's saying, listen... 
I'm putting all of this on display for you with my life. You want to know what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God? Here's how it is. And so we're moving. In the Old Testament, we're transitioning from learning scales to the New Testament where we're playing music. And when you live it out, here's what it looks like. And he put, he's saying, here's what it looks like when you live out the kingdom of God. And, and he puts it on display for you and for me to see so that we can also live it out. He's like, Jesus like, listen, let's make music. He's like, let's live into the fullness of our humanity that God has always designed for us to live. That was his goal. So no, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And then Jesus goes and he gives us three encouragements. In light of that, in light of knowing that I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, he encourages us with three ways. And the first one is in, in verse 18. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything, everybody say everything. And what does everything mean? everything until everything is accomplished. It's like not the smallest letter nor the stroke of a pen. In other words, not the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I will be missed. None of it is going anywhere until everything is accomplished. Now, some of it was accomplished in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, right? He accomplished some of those things, and yet some is still left to be accomplished or fulfilled, or fulfilled, and you can be rest assured that nothing's happening to his scripture until, he, uh, until the fullness of everything is completed. And so here's his point. His point is that you and I can have confidence in the scripture being accomplished and not abolished. That we can have confidence in the scripture that every word, and hear me when I say this, every word in the Bible, Every word in this book is important, and every word in this book is true, including future promises. And the Bible tells us things like who we are, but it also tells us where we came from, and it also tells us where we are going. And so Jesus says, listen, you can have confidence that this word is timeless, and it is not going to change, and it is not going to go away until all things have come to fruition. And then Jesus continues in verse 19, look on again, it says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And we gotta do a quick time out here because you need to understand the context of the word or the phrase kingdom of heaven. Because in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, He's talking about the rule and the reign of God that you and I can step into right this moment. That the kingdom of heaven, that when we love God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul, we are stepping into the kingdom of heaven. That when we love our neighbors as ourselves, we are stepping in to the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about some place that will go when we die, but he's talking about how we can live in the kingdom of heaven today. And here's what he goes on and he says, he says, but whoever practices, everybody say practice. And whoever teaches, everybody say teach. These commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, listen, if you want to live in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to live in the reign of God in this world right now, then you have to be in part of what's going on in the scripture. You have to 
practice it, and you have to teach it to others. James said it this way quite plainly in James 1, He said, don't merely listen to the word of God and so you deceive yourselves. He says what? Do what it says. In other words, practice the word of God. If you want to experience the kingdom of God right here, you practice the word of God. You see, scripture is intended to shape us into the people God desires for us to be, not to tell us what to do in every single situation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. You're not going to find an answer to every single circumstance that you're facing in your life. That's not the goal of Scripture. Scripture was never designed to be uh, an answer to every single situation. You're like, well, Pastor Rick, I got this situation. I can't find an answer for it in the Bible. It's not designed to give you every single answer to every situation. It's designed to shape you into the people of God so that when those circumstances come, you know the character of God. You know who God is. You know what God would say about that specific circumstance and situation. And because it doesn't have an exact answer to your circumstance, but you know who God is and you know how God would respond to that because you know the character of God, and so you respond in the way that God would respond because you've allowed the scriptures to shape you into the people that God desires for you to be. So I hope you see how important the word of God is in living the Christian life. Like we are useless without the scripture because as we read the scripture, we we discover who God is. We discover his character. We discover what he does, how he says things, how he lives, how he acts. And we're like, listen, that's how I want to be. That's what I want to do. And so when we're faced with hard times, when we're faced with a complicated uh, circumstance that we don't know if we go this way or that way, we can go and say, but I know the character of God. And that's where we get that question that we always used to wear wristbands that said, what? What would Jesus do, right? Like, what would Jesus do in this situation? And so Jesus encourages us that the scripture is not only here to stay, but that it's also here to shape us. And then Jesus wraps it up in verse 20. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And and for us, we get this. For us, we understand that the Pharisees, we've been told uh, throughout church that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that they were knuckleheads. They were a bunch of knuckleheads. We get that. But for the people in Jesus' day, they would have, uh, that would have been unheard of. Nobody surpassed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the most righteous of them all. They were the ones that, that, that wrote the law and made, memorized the law and held you accountable to the law. There was no one better off than them. And it would be like someone saying to you today, walking up to you and saying, unless you're more righteous than Billy Graham, you're never gonna enter into the kingdom of God. Like, just let that sink in for a minute. Unless you are better than Billy, you ain't got a chance. And that's what Jesus, that's what they heard when Jesus said that. And the people that were sitting there like, Jesus, we don't get it. Like, how in the world could we become more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? And here's what I think a problem that we have is that we think righteousness uh, as being right with God. And it certainly is. Righteousness means to be right with God. But being righteousness, uh, being righteous also means that we're in right relationship with the people around us. Remember what God, Jesus said? He said, love God and love people. So to be a righteous person, yes, we have to be right with God. 
but we also have to be right with the people around us. See, being righteousness could be summarized in one word. If I had to pick a word, it'd be the word goodness. Jesus says, unless your goodness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of God. And, and, and what do we know about the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law? Well, we know that they used guilt and fear as their motivation. That's what they used. They used fear and guilt. They, they shamed people into following the law. They guilted people. They used uh, fear tactics to do that. But Jesus, Jesus says, that's never the intentions of the law. He's like, I'm inviting you to interact with God, not based on fear and not based on guilt, but I'm asking you to, inviting you to interact with God based on joy and delight, that you, that you obey God out of your joy for him, not out of your fear for him, that, that, that you might know him and not just externally through, some, uh, through your obedience, through a bunch of moral lists and through doing, uh, checking off boxes. I went to church, I, went to, uh, I, went to, I prayed, I read my Bible, I did a good deed today. So that's not what Jesus intended. He says, listen, I want you to, to follow, not externally, but I want you to follow me internally. I'm inviting you into this eternal, internal relationship through my Holy Spirit. And so here's what Jesus is inviting us to this Christmas. I want you to hear this, that he's inviting us to a transformed internal life rather than a conformed external life. That Jesus is not interested in a bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. He's not interested in a bunch of checking off the boxes to say, hey, I did this, I did that. He's interested in a life that is transformed from the inside out, that rather than just keeping the commandments, Jesus is painting the picture of a type of person or a type of people that we must become where we're going to live our lives in the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is, this is what it is. This is why I came on Christmas so that you can see what it looks like. And it's not out of fear and it's not out of, out of shame and guilt, but rather it's out of a love. It comes out of a love for me. So our final question is this, what do we do, right? We live a transformed internal life rather than a conformed external life. Listen, we can, and many of us do, we look like we have it all together on the outside, but on the inside, our souls are rotting away. And Jesus says, I want so much more for you than that. Like, I don't just want you to look good on the outside. He's like, check, check. Don't just walk through life going, check, I did that, and I didn't do that, and I was a good person. He wants us to become the type of people who live life in the kingdom of God right here and right now, who live life loving Jesus, who live life walking with Jesus, who live life knowing his presence and his goodness and allowing his presence and his goodness and his love to shine through us to the rest of the world. That's why Jesus said, be salt and be light, right? He said, be the salt of the earth and the light of the world because he wants us to allow his goodness to shine through us. Listen, the last thing Jesus wants you to do is to spend your life being in competition with other people around you. He wants you to live a life of contentment. 
He doesn't want you to be worried and spend your life worrying about whether you're perfect or not or whether you're good enough or not. He wants you to walk in relationship with him. He wants to make music with you. He wants to, he wants to worship with you. He wants you to be the type of people who obey him not out of fear and not out of guilt, but who obey him out of joy and delight. Even Jesus, or God, uh, he made a new covenant. He said, this is my new covenant that I'm, I'm hoping for you. This is what I'm promising you. And in Jeremiah, we get a picture of this covenant in chapter 31. I just want to read it to you. It says this. It says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. So after Christmas, he says, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. He goes on and he says uh, this. He says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. No longer will we have to say, now remember, Jesus is the reason for the season because they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. In other words, God is saying, I'm gonna invite people into my forgiveness, into this covenant of love, and it's gonna change them from the inside out. It's gonna transform who they are. And when Jesus came on that first Christmas morning, that day had dawned. That day had begun, and that day is now. You see, church, here's what I want you to hear this Christmas. Jesus wants to change you he wants to transform your life from the inside out. And this is why Jesus came on Christmas. This is the reason for the season, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to paint for you and for me this beautiful picture of what it looks like to live the transformed life. That's what Jesus wants for you. He doesn't want you to live a life of just making the outside look good. He wants you to live a life that's been transformed on the inside, a life that you no longer live in fear and shame and guilt, but a life where you live in love and contentment and hope and joy and peace because of the relationship that you have with Jesus. So what might this look like for you this week? Maybe there's someone in your life that's different than you, or maybe there's someone in your life that disagrees with you, or maybe there's someone in your life that you really just don't like a whole lot. The invitation from Jesus today is the invitation of love, and to love those people in a way that you join Jesus in fulfilling the law. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe for you, maybe you came here this morning and you're like, you're just worn out. Like life is upside down. You have faced one circumstance after another. You're like dreading the Christmas holiday. And I just want you to know that Jesus sees you. He sees you right where you are. And listen, he wants to meet you right where you are. And he wants to fill you back up and restore you and reclaim so that you can reclaim that hope and that peace and that love and that joy. 
See, that's why we have Christmas, so that we can see and so that we can experience God's shalom, his perfectness, his wholeness, his completeness, and so that we can experience his love and a life and that we might live our lives in a way that would light the way for others to experience the same thing. You see, Jesus didn't come to abolish anything. He came to make it complete. He came to bring it to fruition. He came to lead us to the destination that God had always designed for us to be. So church, I'm inviting you this Christmas season as we begin, right? Like we are entering into the season we call Advent, the season of expecting Jesus, the baby Jesus. And I'm inviting you in that season to live a life of shalom, like to really allow God to come and to transform you from the inside out. And then to share that love with others, to allow the love of God to shine through you so that others might also experience the same hope and love and peace and joy that we're experiencing. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for this word. And Lord, I thank you that that Jesus is the reason for why we gather here today. And as we enter into this Christmas time, Lord, as we enter into this season of Advent, my prayer for myself and my prayer for my friends is that we would allow you to transform us from the inside. That we would make it a goal to live a life of shalom, to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And that we would live the law of love and love our neighbor as ourselves. God, for this is the reason for the season. And Lord, if there's someone in this room today who's never given their life to you, that today would be the day that they would say yes to you. That today would be the day that they would surrender their life and give it to you and say, Lord, would you take this broken down mess and would you transform it into a beautiful piece of work that you always wanted it to be. If that's you this morning, just in your seat, you can just invite Jesus into your life by simply saying, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you came on this earth. I believe that you died on the cross and I believe that you rose from the dead so that I might have life. Life now and life forever with you. Lord, come and be my savior today. Just invite Jesus in for the rest of us. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe there's some circumstances that are overwhelming you. Listen, you can live the transformed life. Just surrender that stuff to the Lord. Just give it to him and say, Lord, I want to be changed. I want transformation to happen in me right now. I want some of that love and peace and joy and hope in my life. 
God, would you come and transform me today from the inside out? Forgive me for the things that I have done. Lead me to the way of the abundant life. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving my friends, no matter what. In your name we pray, amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing our song together, a response. We're going to respond to the words that we've heard from God's word. And so I invite you to respond. You can sing, you can come and pray, you can be still in your seat, whatever it is. But I invite you to respond because I know that God wants you to respond to his message. So you're welcome to come and pray. Our house is your house. You're welcome to sing wherever you are. But whatever it is, just do it with a heart and an attitude of worship.